Hey guys, and welcome to the show. Thanks for joining me tonight. I'm actually joined by a special guest, but also a recurring one. He's been on the show literally dozens of times, but if you're newer to this channel, as in within the last year, you may not have met him. His name is Rob Knorr, and we used to do shows together, like, literally every week. And he's one of very few YouTubers that I respect for his willingness to be frank and authentic with his audience and even say things that they may not may not agree with. And that's not the easiest thing I know from experience. Um, welcome to the show, Rob. It's good to have you join me. It is great to finally be back. We should definitely do this more often. Uh, all One of my favorite streamers as well. I praise you all the time. I think that you are one of the most genuine, smartest people out there. And uh, I think that both of us deserve a bigger audience, but at least we have great audiences, and that's what's most important. We do have that. Um, go ahead and, since it has been so long, go ahead and let people know where it is that they can find you. Sure. So I'm primarily at this point on Twitch. So it's twitch.tv backslash Rob Nor. It's spelled R-O-B-N-O-E-R-R. -R. It's all one word, all lowercase. I usually am streaming almost every weeknight, live streaming around 8 p.m. Eastern time to usually sometimes 10 p.m., sometimes 3 in the morning, depending on who I'm doing. I think I specialize in debates. I debate a lot of left-wing people. I did debate in college, and I'm good at that. I also have a shit YouTube channel when I'm not censored from there, Normal America with Rob Nor on YouTube, and all other platforms you can find me on odyssey and other places like that it's kind of funny you actually have had a harder time on youtube than on other platforms and i've generally found the opposite to be true i think maybe our, our topics are a little bit disparate and that, that has kind of manifest in that yeah, that, it's absolutely true. I've been lucky. I mean, people say all the time, I don't know if this is something you find, whether it be someone saying, where's the best place to follow you? Where's the best place to donate? There really aren't very many good places for any of that. People be like, well, I won't give on Patreon or YouTube, but I'll give through Twitch. And then someone will say, well, Amazon owns them. Right. You a Bezos fan? <laughs> well, I don't like Twitch, then I'll donate on YouTube. Oh, so you're giving your money to Alphabet? You know? Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I've had bad luck with YouTube. Um, if you get three community guideline strikes within 90 days, they totally remove your channel. So it's constantly push the envelope until I have to delete my entire videos for the past six months, wait 90 days, and then stream again. So Twitch, I've been lucky with. I haven't been censored at all. There. Yeah. Um, and, and Twitch, I, I usually avoid because there are just so many different topics that I cover constantly on the trans issue that I, I can't speak as I do, right, uh, with pronouns and so on, uh, yeah. on Twitch. And that's, it's just, it's amazing to me that the way their policies are. But um, moving on, I think one of the, the biggest fights in our modern culture is kind of over the family unit and that kind of manifesting, like, who owns the kids with regard to our school system and so on. I mean, do you see that as well? Do you think that's, that's kind of a, a, big, a big cultural battle right now? Yeah, I absolutely do. And I think that it's intentional. I think that... We've had this conversation before where we've said things like this. If you have to rely on censorship and controlling of a narrative, it's because your ideas are so bad. And I think that our establishment, particularly the ones that voice left-wing positions, um, they understand that their ideas are so unpalatable to people that have real-world experience and have sort of a common sense on how the world works that they need to sort of indoctrinate our children. Um, I think that you could see that there's credit. I actually saw this really interesting clip from this guy, Aaron Sorkin. He was a director and a movie producer. Okay. He made the movie Trading Places, which is a great movie with Eddie Murphy and Dan Aykroyd back in the day. And he was saying that he was friends with one of the Rockefellers. And the Rockefeller told him uh, that women's like working movement, like, you know, getting women in the workplace wasn't done for equal empowerment of women. It was done because it doubled their tax base and because it made children wards of the state. 
because they could then indoctrinate children because instead of having a mother at home to teach the children values, now the state got to do it through their school. And I think there's a lot of truth. Right. And it's like the the trouble is that so many people tell me, well, yes, you know, I I send my kid to the public school system. But, you know, we, we, we talk to the kid the rest of the time and everything's going to be fine. And then, you know, the years go by and they start to kind of see what's going on. It's like, ultimately, you end up sending your kid into somebody else's control for eight hours a day. And it's not like you're just sending them to to a Navy. You're sending them into a system that is actively working to change the way the kid thinks about moral and cultural issues. And that's the part that I can't get people to grasp. It's not like, oh, you know, it's just some stranger who happens to have a different opinion than me. My kid might get exposed. My kid will make whatever opinion. It's like, no, they're being put into a system where they're being actively indoctrinated. There's an active attempt to change the way the kid thinks about basic elements of culture and faith um, and just morality itself. Yeah, it's it's absolutely true. And, you know, one of the things that I think it's a good exercise, this isn't foolproof, but it's something that I do a lot. It is look at what people's reactions to things are. Oftentimes that tells you more about the story than the original story you hear. So watch how these teachers unions, for example, watch how they react to something such as, well, we shouldn't have critical race theory in schools. They say, well, critical race theory is not there, but your bill removing it would be horrible. We'll indoctrinate children or the don't say gay bill. Oh, if we did that, it would like it, it's clear, you know, and maybe the biggest example of is the fights against transparency in the school. Yeah. They constantly say stuff like it's not the parents role. It's the teacher's role to teach. These objections are because they're basically acknowledging, yes, we do want to indoctrinate your children. Yeah. And, you know, one of the earliest things that woke me up. Uh, as a kid, sort of red pill to, to use a, uh, you know, a, a modern expression was I was a teenager and there was this, I was in England and the National Union of Teachers announced that they weren't going to uh, cover the sort of history of British colonialism because they were afraid that it would lead to nationalist thinking. And I heard that and I was like 14, 15 years old. And it horrified me because it showed that they were intentionally omitting parts of our education in order to change the way we actually thought as people, right? And they were omitting truth. They weren't saying, hey, we're not going to lie about this thing because it's going to mislead people. They were actually saying, we are going to lie through omission in order to make kids become a certain way. And that's that's really horrifying. And I think that, you know, nowadays, perhaps they're a little less likely to say something so, so brazen, uh, to the public at least. But that that certainly goes on. That That um, I guess, very careful choosing of history and education in order to result in a very specific outcome. Yeah, and two things. One, it's been getting exponentially worse. So if you go to somewhere like Heterodux Academy that shows, it's talking more about uh, you know higher ed, but what it shows is it's always leaned left-wing, people getting involved in education, right. right? But now it's exponentially going not just left-wing, but overwhelmingly extreme left-wing, right? So that's the first thing. So you see that they're becoming more brazen and more emboldened in many ways. The other thing is this. Think about, there's problems with the curriculum anyways and the policies, but think about an individual teacher. Here's how it ends up working. And this is a problem with, in general, the right and the left or the establishment and those of us against it in general. Our arguments, like we should be, if we were teachers, we would say, we'll try to be even-minded and teach as best we can both sides of an issue. But their argument is, we are more moral than you, and so we are justified in indoctrinating to our beliefs. And so when you have, even if there's an even 50-50 split, half the teachers that share our cultural values are like, well, we'll try to teach everything. And then the ones that don't share our values are like, no, we'll teach your values are evil. Yes. 
when that plays out generation over generation, you start to see the indoctrination. Yes, I absolutely agree. And welcome to all the different people from Let's Be Frank and to Frank himself in the in the chat. It's good to see that see you all. Thanks for the thanks for the raid, Frank. Um, I, I figure we should probably move on to, to, to the big topic that kind of ties into this, which is like you just mentioned, right? The don't say gay bill, which is not actually called that. I know there's some people who think that actually like that was the title. Like whoever drafted this was actually putting that, like don't say gay in our schools. That's actually not the title. It's the Parental Rights in Education Act. It's a bill out there in Florida. And before I go too far into it, I just want to say that the, the point of the bill, the main point is to say that lessons about sexual orientation are banned outright in kindergarten through third grade. So really we're talking up to like age eight, nine if you're being generous for the kid who got, got held back, right? But we're talking really young kids aren't allowed to be taught by teachers about sexual orientation. It also prohibits lessons in other grades unless they're age appropriate and developmentally appropriate. That's what all the different like screaming has been about. And you know, you wouldn't think so because the modern left has been saying, well, we, we don't teach that stuff to little kids. Right, that's been the argument. We don't teach that to little kids. Why would we? And we're not pedophiles. Now you've got this one bill that, that comes out and says, actually, you can't teach that to little kids. And now they're all up in arms. <laughs> you notice that too? Right. That, that's Yeah. And Christine Peshaw, who's the spokesperson, she's like the Jen Psaki of DeSantis, right? She answered this on a, t a tweet. I saw someone ask, what if uh, you're talking about parents and one little girl says, but I have two, you know, I have two moms. What would you say? And she said the teacher would say some families are different. Anyways, moving on, and and people were like, "Well, yeah," because the reality is there is no reason to talk sexuality to children eight and under. There is none, right? And here's the thing, right? With any law that you have, you could take something to the extreme kind of example of it, right? You could say, well, if we lock people up with drunk driving, what if a person's just point over that and they were driving their wife to that was in labor and blah, blah, blah. You can take those extreme examples. So they're taking it to the extreme with the it means you can't say the word gay. That's not true. The reality is, although any law has that sort of implication that it could be used nefariously at the most extreme end, the pendulum has swung so far to the sexualization of our children and unethical teachers seeking to indoctrinate our children over and over and over again. We see an example of it, that this law is not only a law that is necessary, but it is one of the best laws that I support that I've seen an actual governor fighting back against this indoctrination. Yeah. And I will say that, you know, I have, I have personal issues against homosexuality being taught in schools, but this isn't even really about that because right. at the ages of eight and under, you shouldn't be talking sexuality at all. Like you shouldn't be talking sexual attraction at all because kids shouldn't experience sexual attraction at that age. They're prepubescent, right? So they're not experiencing any of that feelings. So there's, there's literally no reason besides grooming that you'd want to talk to kids about this. You're, you're just sexualizing them. Um, and that's the thing, isn't it? That's what grooming is. For those who don't know, it's like when a pedophile takes a little child, right, and starts talking to them about sex and sexual topics in order to get them more comfortable with it so that later on they can become physical with the child and sexual with the child. That's the whole point of grooming. And that's what we're now doing inside of schools is having these teachers have these overtly sexual conversations with really uh, young children. And this I would think would be something that everybody would be concerned about. And I'm alarmed to find that, in fact, people aren't. 
right? I mean, it, and again, they're kind of like trying to conflate it with, with saying gay, which is ridiculous. But instead, what we should be focusing on is we're talking directly about the sexualization of children. This isn't even part of, part of the gay conversation, which is actually a different topic altogether. Well, they know, right? Here's the thing. The extreme leftist, sort of the postmodern, you go to like one of the founders of postmodernism, Michel Foucault. Michel Foucault would take handicapped children at, as young as 12 years old and commit very heinous acts with them. And he basically made excuses for it and said that his ideology that basically said that there's no such thing as truth, that everything's subjective, that that then why would he would justify it and say it's bigotry to not allow this child to make the choice. Right. And it starts to make sense when you see the other things they believe where they're claiming that words don't really have meaning or that things like biology doesn't have meaning that everything's subjective. And so if your sex could be subjective, so can your race. Right. And if your race could be subjective, so can your age. Right. And so we could say, and you could you could literally see that when many of them start to they understand that their ideology goes down that path. I'm not saying every person that's a lefty believes that, but certainly the ones that are at the forefront of this indoctrination, they believe that and they are attracted to this and it allows them to make excuses for the horrible things that they want to do. Yeah, I mean, I would, I would completely agree. I think that's where they kind of get these these phrases like my truth that we've kind of come to mark. And, mm -hmm. and rightly so, right? Because there is no, like, your truth. There is only the truth in your opinion. And nowadays, we're sort of conflating these two. We're refusing to sort of acknowledge, I think, absolute truths and the fact that they even exist. In fact, I think in colleges, it's very common for kids to be taught that there is no absolute truth, that this is kind of, you know, a hearkening back to a, a an earlier time when people were, were less sophisticated, right? It's like, no, actually, there, there is reason. You can look down and figure out what your gender is. And, and that's something that nowadays is suddenly controversial, apparently. This bill... And that I, I'll just say real quick, just another example of this to see. It's not just the straight out advocating for the sexualization of children. It's also making excuses when that goes awry. And so two examples, just real quick, I can think of is Rotterdam, uh, all the situation you had in the UK where you had these grooming scandals going yeah. on for decades with hundreds of thousands of girls that were groomed. And basically it was, well, it would hurt me. I could be accused of being racist if I speak up and say these are Islamic extremists that are doing this. So they said the sacrificing of these girls was worth it. Mm -hmm. Or look at Loudoun County, Virginia, where we saw, you know, a gentleman be arrested protesting that the school covered up, you know, the rape of his daughter by a transgender student in a bathroom. And they punished the dad. So you can see how quickly, even if you say, but my school board guy wouldn't ever do anything that heinous. It's quick to see how this ideology and the sexualization of children excuse could be made for it as soon as it's politically convenient. Yeah, and I thought it was interesting, actually. I think it may have been a couple of years ago now, but you and I talked about um, about this thing where you had all these different Brits who who saw and heard about this 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 grooming scandal in, in Britain. For those who, who don't know, full the, the fastest, most concise thing is you had these Muslim child rape gangs who were raping uh, girls who were not Muslim, and they were targeting these girls, and the, the parents and the girls themselves would go to the police. The police would say, we're not going to pursue the charges. And it all came out that it was because it would upset community relations uh, to do so. In other words, they were afraid of being called racist. That was the thing. And when you and I discussed this, Rob, we talked about how people in America often said this couldn't happen here. Right. This would never happen here in this country. It, it just wouldn't. And now here we are and you see an, an, a different, you know, guys on a different veneer 
but it's it's the very same thing, right? When you see the, the discussions that you have about transgenderism and so on, it's well, we're not going to investigate this particular rape because it, it it looks bad. It's it's socially confusing, and you know, so we're just going to kind of sweep this case under the rug and and move this move this predator from one school to another instead of you know contacting the, the right authorities and and getting rid of this person who's a danger. And predictably, it led to more girls being victimized. Right. I mean, so there are real consequences of this. And you might say that's one situation, but think about this, right? This was an entire administrative staff at a school, at multiple schools, that knew what was going on and intentionally lied about it because they basically, if you make this as simplistic as possible, they thought that not getting justice for those girls was worth it in order to virtue signal their political message. And when you have people that otherwise, these people weren't rapists themselves. Right. But they were willing to defend the action because there was a higher calling. Now, and by the way, we're not going to talk about other issues with viruses and things like that as much. But I will just say that there seems to be a theme where we're saying that sometimes sacrificing children and pain for children, oftentimes in the most heinous ways, like in these sexual assaults, is worth it for adults' political virtue signaling. And I can't think of a more sick and disgusting disease that could infest a culture or a country than sacrificing children in that way. Uh, yeah, I agree completely. Now, on this bill, the second point, one that's kind of gotten less less attention, not that, not that the bill itself is getting a whole lot of attention, mostly just the, the, the fake title that's been given it, right? They don't say gay bill. Right. Nobody knows what's in it. Uh, but the second thing that's actually in it is that it also requires schools to notify parents, and I quote, if there is a change in the student's services or monitoring related to the student's mental, emotional, or physical health or well-being, unquote. So in other words, uh, if the school is going to suddenly start teaching, start treating the kid as trans or as the other gender, the school would actually have to notify the parents that this is going on. And this is in contrast to what we've seen in these different cases, where a child has been exposed to this propaganda, has decided, well, actually, I think I'm a boy, and then the school has gone along, changed the, changed the name, and entirely started teaching, treating this kid like a boy, and so on, and the parents don't know anything about it until they want to start, you know, doing hormones and that kind of thing. Yeah, it's... It, I. And I'll be honest, I didn't even know about this until I'm talking to you now. I skimmed the bill. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's absolutely antithetical to what we see most of these schools doing. And I think that, you know, it's weird for me. I'm 37 and I'm a first time dad. Right. Uh, so I have a 14 month old son. And it really does change your perspective. And you start to understand how heinous it is for these teachers to so arrogantly think that you could uh, convince, you know, vulnerable children of these life changing radical ideologies and that the parents don't know. They don't know what's going on. We should always, I'm not saying every parent's perfect, but we should always default to the parents are the first bulwark to making the decisions that's best for their individual children. And so I'm in favor of anything that says we maximize parents' involvement, particularly in situations that are very extreme, like, you know, issues of how children identify with things like that. Yeah. Yeah. And well, yeah, I'll leave it at that. Yeah, and this bill has passed the the House and the Senate. DeSantis plans to plans to sign it. I believe that's the latest update. And um, Disney uh, has, well, they decided to take a step back as a company to begin with. They just weren't going to issue a public comment because of that. Many members of the staff started staging walkouts and have been particularly vocal because the Disney Corporation wasn't loud enough in opposition to the Don't Say Gay bill, which is obviously 
evil and homophobic and everything else, right? Um, now, we just found out that four different uh, employees of Disney have been arrested for pedophilia and human trafficking. This isn't the first time, actually, that we've had Disney uh, employees arrested for this. In fact, it's a pattern. If you start looking this up, you can kind of look up Disney employees arrested and then a year. And you can kind of do it every year and find different ones that have been arrested. It's that common that they're arrested um, for 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 child-related sex crimes. There's a there's a connection there, I do believe. Do you think it's ironic, though, Rob, that you have these different people who are protesting against this bill, and at the same time, you kind of have these arrests for, for, for pedophilia? Yeah, I think, to me, and this is a generalization before I get to the specifics of this, oftentimes you could tell people's priorities by what they protest much or put the majority of their focus on. So, you know, uh, whether it be Russia collusion, oh, talking to Russians, that's the worst thing ever, that's the worst thing ever. And then you're like, well, what about when the Hillary Clinton did it to a known Russian spy? Well, it's different. Oh, yeah, yeah, I guess that's bad, too. But anyways, back to Trump. It's the same thing here. It's like, they let's say that you legitimately felt that this was a bill that said, don't say gay, right? And you're from Disney. And let's say you legitimately were upset about that. Okay. What about your own house? What about the fact that there are reported stories of sexualization of children and children being harmed over and over and over again at schools and at your own company? Why aren't you standing up and saying, well, that's an even more important issue? Instead, they're like, oh, yeah, 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 that's bad. I'm obviously against it. But anyways, back to this. And so I think that it's very telling because it shows that people's priorities, and by the way, the whole the you know employees that are protesting thing. The reason this happens is because they think that there is something personal. There's a capital to gain by doing this stuff. They think that that'll make them look good and give them sort of social credit points and things like this by doing it. If enough of us like engaged with people like DeSantis that just said enough is enough. This isn't something to be proud of, and you're actually harming children. That stuff would end in a few short years. I guarantee it. Yeah, for sure. There's a guy in the chat who said, "Don't say gay is also don't." St- don't say straight. And yeah, exactly. That's that's a point that we kind of got to earlier was, you know, as long as you're talking sexuality with kids who are under the age of eight or eight and under, uh, then you're out of line. Like I wouldn't expect a straight teacher to go in there and start talking about his or her sexual relations with anyone. I wouldn't consider it appropriate. I think that person should be removed from, from their position, from their teaching position. Uh, just to be clear, uh, I, I use the, the, the don't say gay title because that's what everyone's familiar with at this point. Right. If I use the actual title, people need to be reminded with, with the fake title. That that's where we are. But I, I have noticed, and I don't think this is controversial in the least, that people who uh, seek positions, I should say pedophiles seek positions where they get access to children. Right? I, I think that should be. Um, pretty obvious. I know it's it's something that's been explained to me several times, including like when I was young, I uh, had a conversation with someone who worked in like the, the health office of our high school who explained to me that he had these different volunteers, men who were constantly volunteering to help help out uh, with the sports and with the health angle and all of that. And he had, had special training to try and tell these people no, because there were just so many different pedophiles who were constantly trying to get access to kids. And so when you look at something like Disney, you have to accept that a, a higher than average number of people who work there are probably going to have um, that attraction to kids. It's just the way that it, it happens to work. And then you, you, so you hear these cases about Disney, Disney employees being outraged at this. And I'm thinking, well, maybe they should be outraged because now our school systems, at least in Florida, are not going to allow kids to be pre-groomed, right? I mean, talk about a vested interest. 
Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. I, you know, I'd mentioned this earlier, but, uh, you know, I do home health care. And one of the things is uh, people with the disabilities that I work with, the data is ridiculous that shows because a lot of these people are nonverbal or can't communicate like everyone else. They're victimized in sexual ways a lot, particularly when they're children. And what you see is a lot of people that get into this line of work disproportionately end up being people that commit those sorts of crimes and it's ease of access right yeah. you know it's you, you get these people that are vulnerable children or people with disabilities that are easy to take advantage of to kind of lord your power over and so you get a job where you're alone with them and there's not other adults that would stop you and so you're able to commit these heinous crimes so absolutely i would say and what i say to that how i think it applies to this is you know i think that the ethical position for any company that primarily works with children is to be as diligent as possible to making sure that your employees aren't doing these sorts of things and that you're culturally endorsing positions to make it least likely for these children to be exploited both in your company and elsewhere. And so that's why it's amazing for people that work with Disney that see how many people have been exploiting children in a sexual or non-sexual manner, the way Disney exploits child labor and things like that overseas. Uh, I would think that the employees, if they really cared about children, would be speaking up about those issues more than the fake ghost don't say gay me. Right, and when it comes to Disney, I mean, you you would naturally, if we were not so informed, uh, tend to think of a company that cares greatly about children, right? Not that just sees them as as instruments of profit, um, <laughs> which seems more accurate from you know from where I'm sitting. Just my opinion mm -hmm. here. But in any case, um, you you would think that they would care about children, and to the degree that they do, you would think that they would want to avoid putting kids in this position where they're going to be hypersexualized in today's world. And I do think that. Probably some of the the highest parts of or the most intense hypersexualization of children does happen at things like gay pride parades. I, I think that it's difficult to to think of an instance, and of course we're doing the 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 drag queen story hour as a thing now. And in some cases we've had drag kids, I hate to even use the term, um, taken into strip bars and that kind of thing and and playing a role there. And it's like this is the sort of thing that 20 years ago we would have all agreed was just outright child abuse. And I'm really getting concerned because it doesn't seem like there's a bar. Like, the, like where's the line now where we say, okay, this thing is happening in which a kid is being hypersexualized by these, this adult or these adults. What makes it abuse? Where's, where's the line? And it's like, well, if it's, if it's a guy and this child who's home alone and nobody else is involved, suddenly it's abuse. But we take it out and we put it inside of a strip club and suddenly it's not abuse anymore. I'm not really sure like what's going on there other than the fact that everybody's sort of, <laughs> I hate to say it like this, but everyone's involved in a, in a sort of collective guilt. Like, hey, well, we've got our hands already dirty and in this sort of pie and we're all involved and therefore it's not bad. Like, like the more people are involved in this crime, the less it can be bad because other people are doing it. Right. Therefore, it's not bad. And that's the kind of like cultural acceptance because we don't seem to have any sort of like moral pillar in our society to stand on anymore other than what well, other people are doing it. Therefore, it's OK. And that's that's like our moral foundation has been eroded such that I do think that at one point we used to look back at Christianity and say, here's our moral foundation. And now we look back at each other and say, oh, there's somebody who did something worse. So what do you think? Yeah, I. I, I think there's a lot of truth in that. I think that, you know, we you have to have underpinning values, you know. I think that religion and Christianity is the, probably the best way to have those values. But part of that values is you have to say, like, there are things that happen in the real world and we have to 
have government and laws and things like mm-hmm. that. And uh, so where do we start with those values? And to me, the place you start is with the most vulnerable children. Yes. That's where you would start. So you always default to trying to do what's best for children, right? I think what happens is, let me just put like a slightly different spin on this. Take something like kink, right? So the idea of kink is this. It's intentionally being provocative, right? Because what they're trying to say is, oh, you told us that you were going to be involved in our sexuality, so we'll be over the top. We'll do it in the most grotesque, offensive way possible. And that's sort of our way of being the court jester, of saying, aha, we thumb our nose at your authority because we will be, right? So, okay, you do that, right? So we could argue whether or not that's a good thing. But then, you know what's even more provocative and outlandish? Getting children involved. Right. That's even more provocative. And the problem is, even if you were of the value that it's important to be provocative and things like that, you have to engage in the real world understanding that that leads to actual harm to children. Not just harm because you're exposing them to sexuality, which is bad in its own right, but also actual victimization of child predators taking advantage of these children, literally happening, right? And so then people that wanna stand up and they're like, oh, we're cool, we're revolutionary, we're fighting the system, we're supporting LGBT issues, we're supporting kink, we're supporting that. And yeah, what's an even better way? Get children involved. That's even more of a thumb in the nose of these people. And yet then when this sexual abuse happens, well, what happens, like in Loudoun County? Well, now you've already co-signed onto it, so you can't admit, and we see this all over the place, people can't admit that the things they've done have been led to some of the most heinous actions. So they'll deflect, they'll say, well, that wasn't me. It actually wasn't that big of a deal. It had nothing to do with the trans bathroom thing. It had nothing to do with it. Oh, we don't really need to talk about it. People are exploiting this situation to argue our, against our political, and they make all of these excuses because they can't reflect on themselves and say, my God, what have we done? What, what have we allowed to happen? We were warned. We were warned by people that said, listen, this uh, humanity is flawed and evil and there are predators and they will victimize these children and you're making it more likely to happen. And we wrote that off. And now we're saying the consequence of us having to face acceptance of that is worse than the con- than trying to get justice for these children that were abused. And so we're just going to keep going with it. Well, you know, I was, I was here in North Carolina at the time when we had the so-called bathroom bill controversy, right? And, and the bathroom bill was put into place, which said that in government, in government property, uh, basically people had to go to the bathrooms that corresponded with their actual sex. And that caused widespread uproar. Uh, but before that, what you actually had were a bunch of different commercials from some human trafficking organizations and from like sexual assault organizations that were putting out these commercials that were saying, actually, we don't want men in our bathrooms. We wouldn't feel safe with men in our locker rooms. There's a reason that, that we don't have it. There's a reason that we separate the sexes. That's not to say that all men uh, you know, are, are rapists or anything like that, but to say that if you put somebody, especially someone with, with a... I guess, a mental illness inside the bathrooms uh, and the person who's intrinsically stronger inside the bathrooms, you're, you're producing a dynamic that's more likely to have these instances happen. And they were promising that, in fact, if you do this, these incidents, you know, there was this risk. If you, if you merge the bathrooms, that you will have an increase in, in attacks. And around the country, we have had an increase in attacks at places where this sort of thing has happened. And in places where simply the culture has changed to just allow an acceptability of it, even in cases where the law hasn't changed, you've had an acceptability such that, you know, guys wearing a dress goes into girl or woman's bathroom, the number of people who would intervene today is significantly lower than would intervene 10 years ago because there's a cultural difference, right? And we're coming across these different cases of 
frankly, just rapes and sexual assaults happening, including with, with children, inside of bathrooms that previously you'd have somebody actually say something, but now there's a much higher bar to get people to intervene because we've come to this acceptability as a society. And that's what I kind of uh, am paying a lot of attention to is the fact that increasingly we're just, we've heard it so much that people are starting to accept, well, you know, it's gender and it's different from sex. And it's like, well, no, no, I, actually, it, it's, it's really not. And I think there's, there's manifest harm that takes place here. And it's one of the things that I think striking is oftentimes you hear the people that want to kind of talk about vulnerable groups the most. The left talks about this a lot. Women, right? The, right. the patriarchy, things like that. People of color, right? They identify these groups as like, it's funny. They feel that they're like the white knight, that they're the great hero that's going to save these groups. Like you see disproportionate white liberal men that are speaking up for women or black people or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? Uh, so it's funny on that level. But the irony is they speak up for these groups. So like women being more vulnerable. Yes. Now, basically, a lot of that's rooted in truth. Physically, that's true. It's just biological reality. And so we understand why uh, we've separated the sexes in all sorts of things, particularly with children, particularly children that are hitting the puberty age, right? We have locker rooms for boys and girls. We understand why we did that. There's a practical reason that that developed. It wasn't some patriarchy that was like, let's be bigoted. That, that's not what happened. So they say, well, we got to speak up for these girls. And they'll, they'll cite statistics all the time. They'll say things like, you know, oh, you know, violence, you know, 87% of violence is committed by men. And, you know, if you put men in close proximity and like these things with women and then women, but then as soon as it comes to the trans issue, all of a sudden we can't say, well, wait a minute, those women that we just told rightfully so that like you should have a private space for yourself because you have a chance of being victimized if you don't have that private. Now all of a sudden we're saying their feelings don't matter. If 20 women in a locker room don't like the person that's biologically male in that locker room with them, we say all that matters is the feeling of that person that's biologically male. That's all that matters. I'm not saying that that person's feelings don't matter. I'm not saying that. But how could you say they matter at the exclusion of all of the other people? And at, and at and the exclusion of the, reality. Right. Well, and w what you end up seeing is that you say, well, that wouldn't make sense if they want to defend women. Why would they do this? And the reality is because it was never about defending women. It was about political power. It what they don't believe in truth. Right. It, it doesn't matter if what they're saying is technically true or not. Everything's subjective. And so once you see that, there's all sorts of insane identity politics that's played on the left that make no sense. And the cracks you see the fissures start to erupt where you see the third wave feminists <laughs> yes. now being called TERFs. You know, you saw, you know, a lot of LGBT people after the Orlando nightclub shooting that all of a sudden started to be incredibly pro Second Amendment. And like, why are we defending radical Islam in the Democratic Party? And the, the Democrats don't know what to say. They're just like, ah, yeah. Trump's Nazi, Trump's Hitler. You know, like that's all they have to say because it's not about truth and being intellectually consistent. It's not about protecting these vulnerable groups. It's about excluding or exploiting that vulnerability to achieve power for themselves. And also by doing so, they take power away from the individual. And this is something that I don't think is paid attention to enough. It's that when a person is put into a certain group as our modern left like to do in a very cultural Marxist sort of a way, what you see is that that person's own individual intrinsic worth, identity, and and value system are reduced to the collective. So instead of of me having authentic opinions, you know, instead people will say, "Well, you're you're a, a millennial woman who's white and straight, and therefore I know exactly what you think, and therefore don't speak on this issue. Like you're a guy, so you can't say anything about abortion. I already know what you think. Uh, you're white, so therefore you can't talk about anything related to black people. I already know what you think, right? And so it, it entirely eliminates the 
the value, the intrinsic worth of the individual and the fact that we are each different, right? It takes all of that away and, and does so so they can exclude, so they can exude power over the individual by reducing them to a collective that they didn't choose to be a part of, right? And that's what we see happening nowadays. It's like, well, you are your group, even though I put you in that group and therefore you have no voice. Well, and listen, to me, what made the United States the greatest country in the history of the world was that it was focused on the individual. And if we maximize people's individuality, clearly we can't have anarchy. There needs to be some set of basic government and laws. Like, we all understand that, except the crazy anarcho-capitalist I debated a couple weeks ago. But other than that, most of us understand that that's necessary, right? But other than that, we maximize individuality, right? The ideology that they're pushing is the exact opposite, that you're all a collective. You're just member of certain groups. And then they play this cultural Marxist game where they say some of these groups are oppressors and some are oppressed. And they say that the highest currency is victimhood. So someone like me, for example, would be like, I'm white, that's bad oppressor. I'm male, that's bad oppressor. I consider myself Christian, that's bad oppressor. You know, I'm fat. Whoa, play that up, right? Like, you know, oh, I'm a victim. I'm being fashion. And like, that's what it encourages people to do to kind of identify these groups. And you're right. What it does is it diminishes individuality. And once you diminish individuality, what it allows them to do is all of a sudden there, you can't blame people for things that they're not individual responsible for. Right. Mm -hmm. And you can see how nefarious is. So there is people that you see increasingly on the left. It'll poke up about once a month, you'll see a big left-wing publication that'll say something like, well, can we really blame pedophiles? Yep. Can we really blame them? Because after all, if it's biological, we can't blame them for choices uh, if they don't have control over the choice. And you can only blame something for a choice that they made of free will. So if you're not an individual and you're a collective, then we could assign guilt or shirk guilt by saying, well, it's not really your fault. You're not an individual. You're a member of a collective. This is a good point. And I think that it does get people to to feel the need to identify with the group that they were placed in, in order to, to kind of to find that their own voice, in order to be acknowledged in our in our modern you know society. It's like, well, I'm a woman, so therefore I can comment on this on this topic, and you have to listen to me, right? And it's 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 that kind of thing. It's like we're we're told that we don't have a voice unless we're victims. And so everybody is trying to like become maximal victim. And I think you kind of have some of that in how many children are saying things like how they're trans and so on. I think a lot of it is, well, this is how I get attention. This is how I get respect in the modern messed up world, right? Uh, is, and we've seen that especially in the fact that so many different trans kids are actually autistic. They're, they're, they're being sort of pushed in a certain direction. That they're being treated better if they, if they identify in this certain way. And it's really messed up. But our society says, if you're a victim, you're better. And that's the only way that you're going to get any sort of respect in our modern world. And I think it's really bad because what then what then happens is a person intrinsically and internally does identify with that victimhood, and that prevents them from propelling themselves into what they ought to be. Right? We all have a a a natural. I don't know how to put this exactly, but I, I do believe that we're all made in the image and likeness of God. But more than that, that we all have an intrinsic sort of um, absolute of what we ought to be if we were to fully manifest ourselves, if we were to reach that sort of uh, actualization that we're supposed to be, you know, but none of us think that we are the best that we could be. We know that intrinsically that we could be something greater and we ought to aim for that. And if you identify yourself solely with your victimhood status, you're not going to reach that. You're not even going to try because you're like, well, there's this oppressor and he's the reason that I'm not where I ought to be. And therefore, I'm just going to stay right here where I am. 
Yeah, and, and like, you know, I'll just add to this real quick. It's ironic. I've heard people say this, but I think it's a great point that the ultimate minority is the individual, mm-hmm. right? When you play the identity politic game and you draw it out because it's like, you know, I'm a victim, I'm black. And then someone says, ah, but I'm more of a victim. I'm a black woman, mm-hmm. you know? And then someone says, but I'm a black woman that's in a wheelchair, right? And someone says, but I'm a black woman, Muslim in a wheelchair. So that's, right? And when you start to play this out, what you find is truly no true people are ever completely identical. Even twins, there's going to be different characteristics of them and things like that. And so if you want to say that, you know, the groups that I pertain to make me unique and, you know, I have unique challenges as that group. Well, at the end of the day, that's the individual. Yes, we all have unique challenges. Right, all the harmful stuff that comes with the collectivization. And by the way, a real world example that we're seeing of this is Democrats seem to be shocked that polling is showing that Hispanics are starting to switch to be more Hispanics tend to be voting GOP or registering GOP now. And they're shocked. They don't understand why. How could it be? Well, it's because Hispanics aren't monolithic that you could just say, oh, the other side hates brown people. They hate them. They hate you. They want like it turns out Hispanics are individuals too that care about things like this. I don't know, uh, being able to feed their family, you know, being able to have law and order. They care about those things, just like white people and black people and other groups, you know. So it's amazing to see that there's sort of incredulous, like, how could this be? Like we know that the people of color have to vote Democrat. No, that's not true at all. But speaking of black women. There was one who was who was recently nominated specifically for that reason. Um, so Biden's Supreme Court uh, pick, uh, Katanji Brown Jackson, right? She was chosen to fulfill Biden's campaign promise, which was that he would choose a black woman. And it is on that basis that I say that she was chosen for those characteristics. It is the Supreme Court, of the United States' blog that announced that that he chose this. He chose her on the basis that she's a black woman. All right. So it's not me saying it. It's the people who are celebrating it that are saying it, just to be clear. Uh, and there has been some investigation recently into her her record, you know, before she was nominated as, as a Supreme Court justice. Uh, a lot of the, the big expose has been done by Josh Hawley, to his credit. And it turns out that she has been especially... Uh, I don't know if generous is the word, but she's been allowing sexual predators to go with the lowest possible sentences. And that seems to kind of fit with the modern left, which is um, an alarming trend, but it's like maybe we should have kind of expected this. But increasingly, the modern left downplays sex offenders, and especially in relation to children, which is what we're talking about here. Yeah, I mean, in general, uh, even before that, we can see that there's big movement for all of this international financing to go into prosecutors and judges and things like that to give as least harshest penalties as possible. And I think that that's intentional because they want crime to be rampant because it helps them get more control. But certainly that's true in the nature of sexual crimes as well. It's very like I have a take that's maybe different than a lot of conservatives, where I think that the United States has both an over incarceration problem and an under incarceration problem. I think we have a lot of crimes that are nonviolent, such as drug offenses and things like that, that although there needs to be penalties for, that we should prioritize trying to help people get better. Instead, oftentimes people will be in jail for five, 10 years for drug-related crimes. And then you hear about these heinous pedophiles. It's like, oh, they got a hundred days in county jail or something like that. And it's, it's shocking. And at some point you have to say, like, 
this has to be intentional. It can't just be an, ah, shucks, whoops, my hands were tied every single time. And why, even if that's true, like either it's these judges are making these choices for some reason, or they're saying our hands are tied because the way the laws are written. But why aren't there people then that are involved in lawmaking that are saying, my goodness, this is a huge loophole. We need to solve this. So it, it's reeks of being intentional. And again, our number one priority should be protecting children. And the most heinous person that could live in your society is someone that would sexually exploit a child. Uh, they should never walk the streets again, as far as I'm concerned. And uh, the fact that we are, as a society, we're just accepting, oh, well, what can we do? The judges gave them less time. And that that judge that seems to have endorsed that may be on the Supreme Court is very troubling. Yes. And, and I agree with, with all of that, actually. I do think that when it comes to uh, possession of various drugs and the way that that's being sentenced, a lot of the problems are related to uh, state laws that need to be changed. Because it's actually pretty rare that a person gets charged under federal law for drug possession. And this is something that I looked up a few years ago, and I was actually surprised that there are actually very few who are charged under federal law. But in any case, yes, I do agree that with, with drug possession cases, there are people spending like ridiculous amounts of time inside of uh, in jails and prisons. And uh, then you look at these more severe crimes that we all agree are more severe, Right, everyone agrees that, that, that like sex offenders are more severe and they're not getting treated appropriately. But Judge uh, Jackson, the one that we're talking about for the Supreme Court, she's she's actually wrote before about not wanting these sex offenders to be registered as sex offenders, saying that it leads to stigmatization and ostracism. That was literally the the, the quote that she used: stigmatization and ostracism. And for me, like that's kind of part of it. It's like yes. If you, let's say, sexually assault a child, I kind of want you to be stigmatized in the sense that you should be labeled. That's, that's literally what we're doing with the sex offenders like registry is labeling these people because they have demonstrated that they're a danger. And also because sex offenders have the highest recidivism rates out of like all offenders. And so right. it makes sense to label them because they literally, in, in every sense, are the highest danger. They're the highest danger to the most vulnerable people. Um, you know, like now and into the future. Yeah, I totally agree. Now, I will say a bit of a caveat to this. When it comes to things like Megan's Law, I've personally heard horror stories where it'll be something like this. Someone was at, uh, you know, a music festival and was drinking and instead of waiting in line to go to the Porta John, they went to the woods, used the, you know, relieved themselves and someone saw it and now they're on Megan's Law. Like, I do think we need to be more clear of there are different crimes that we consider, you know, when it comes to children, something like that clearly isn't the heinous type of person that we're worried about, such as someone who's literally sexually assaulted a child, right? But certainly once you get to that level, now listen, no system is perfect. I understand that. And I also understand English common law and the idea that you would rather 100 people walk free yeah. that were guilty than one innocent person. But we have to understand when it comes to the protection of children, if we have a court, you still get your day in court. No one's suggesting otherwise. Right. You still have a right to a defense, a speedy trial, due process, etc. But if convicted. Unless that conviction is overturned for some reason. Absolutely, if you're convicted of that crime, the very least we could do is make sure that everywhere that you ever exist outside that prison system, that everyone knows that you committed that crime. Because not only is the recidivism the highest, but the alleged or but the potential victims are the most vulnerable. And so if it's someone, you know, that's like, if your crime is that you rob Navy SEALs, maybe we don't have to announce that as much. 
because the Navy SEAL can take care of themselves, but the children can't. Right. And if you put these people out there that aren't properly labeled so parents know to be vigilant against these sort of predators, then absolutely it enhances the chances of them assaulting these children. Again. Right. And, you know, just to, to kind of rehash it for those who missed it, as a judge, this woman repeatedly chose the lowest possible sentence when sentencing a variety of sex offenders, including like child pornography and that kind of thing. And because you have like uh, sentencing guidelines between, you know, they should serve between a certain number of years. And instead she went under that to the, to the very minimum that she could sentence people to. And she did that over and over again. And she has suggested that public policy in relation to um, but getting people to register on the sex offenders list is driven by, as she put it, a climate of fear, hatred, and revenge against sex offenders. And the thing is, I, I sort of agree that there is a climate of fear in relation to sex offenders. I just don't think that's wrong. I actually think that right. that's appropriate. I think it's an appropriate response to people who are the most dangerous to the most vulnerable. And in fact, it's, it's appropriate because you look at the fact that they, these people do in fact reoffend. Again, the most vulnerable people. And therefore, like, it's not that, oh, we saw somebody who had the wrong color skin. We were afraid of them. And then we decided to come up with this, this massive policy on the basis of that. No, that's not what we did. We came across somebody who had harmed somebody, the most vulnerable people in our society. We punished them for doing so, presumably, I hope. And then they're placed on a list because we know they're more likely to do this in the future and because we care about our most vulnerable. And yes, we're afraid for our most vulnerable and that's a priority in our society. Well, and it's, again, that's exactly right. When we go back to that, the value should be protecting children first and foremost. Now, again, this doesn't come at the exclusion of the principles that make our country great, such as your right to defend. No one's suggesting that, right? But like when we are looking specifically, and oh, my camera there's adjusted a little, it's all right. Um, when we're looking specifically at, you know, what we should do with these people, I absolutely agree because think about it this way. Like if, if that makes 10 convicted pedophiles feel bad that never went on to commit a crime again, okay, I guess that's a harm, right? Mm -hmm. But if even one child is spared being sexually assaulted because of that, isn't that where our value should be in that case? And again, you see this theme, we talked about it, you know, when it came to the bathroom situation, where why is it that the 30 girls, biological women in the locker room, we say your feelings don't matter, but this one person, I think that all of their feelings matter. And unfortunately, uh, because there's so many people that would be negatively affected in the one way, that we have to prioritize that when it comes to the locker room issue. Similarly here, and with other crimes, it's like, why do we never care about the victims? Yes. Particularly when the victims are children. Where's their voice? You know, and uh, it's so many times now we hear, and I agree with many crimes, I think you know, pedophilia and child sex assault, not one of them, but with many crimes, I could sympathize with the criminal and saying like, okay, like this doesn't make you the most evil person in the world. We all deserve second chances and things like that, you know, but you have to have someone that's sympathizing with the victims and particular, our value should be maximizing, um, you know, protecting victims that are children. Yes. And you know, the... It's the modern left who has been, been pushing this. This isn't just this one judge. It's actually, I think, the, the leftist policy at this point is basically that we're, uh, we're, we're treating criminals too badly, even in cases of sex, of, of sex offenses. And it's kind of ironic because it hasn't been that long since these people were talking about how we had a rape culture. Right. It was these people who were like, like college campuses are war zones and we have this rape culture and everybody's fond of rape. And it was it was a ridiculous argument because in our society, no, people aren't fond of rape. 
That's that's not the, what the society that we have, thank goodness. Um, and it isn't the society that we have had. And if we had an actual rape culture, it might look something more like what you have in Pakistan, where you have those courts that decide on things like revenge rapes. For those who are lucky enough to not know what it is until now, it's a case where you have... A, after, for example, a man rapes a woman, then the, the this little kangaroo court decides that instead his sister ought to get raped. Um, that's that's what a revenge rape is that happens over in Pakistan. That's a rape culture. We do not and have never had anything quite like that here, um, fortunately. But in any case, the modern left talks ad nauseum about rape culture. Or certainly did until suddenly now we're like, well... But the rapists and the pedophiles aren't that bad because pedophiles are people too and it's just a sexual orientation is the way that they're going. And I'm, I'm trying to sort of marry these two policies together and I'm kind of having some trouble here, Rob. Well, and again, this isn't every single person on the left and I know you of agree course. with that as well. But what happens is, right, and you can see this theme that it comes over and over. They constantly, when the real evil person or the real bad thing that they claim to care about happens, all of a sudden they don't care about it. Instead, they seek to, when it's politically beneficial or helps their side, accuse people that aren't really those things to do it. Let me give you an example. Yeah. Nazis, right? Now, in Ukraine, we have actual Nazis, the Azov Battalion, which have been funded for a long time, right? Mm -hmm. Like, not making any statements on what your stance should be in the Ukraine-Russia situation. I'm just saying, there literally are. Now, they're like, for better or worse, and by the way, I could give the case if my country's being invaded, I'm not going to ask the person shooting at the invaders next to me, by the way, what's your opinions on Israel? Like, I'm probably not going to ask them. I, so I get that, right? But still, when there's actual Nazis, they're like, well, but they'll accuse you of being a Nazi because you voted for Donald Trump. Or where there's actual rapists, I don't know why it keeps doing yeah, that. Yeah, me either. Makes it interesting. <laughs> uh, but when there's actual rapists, they're like, well, but they'll accuse a rape culture, like all fraternities are a rape culture or something like that. Like, when there's actual racists, when you see actual racism and things like that, oftentimes they don't speak up about like, you know, the Waukesha situation where a black person ran over a bunch of white yep. people because he was mad about the Rittenhouse. Like, like all of a sudden the racism doesn't. So all of these things, the reason that it's hard to kind of think, well, wait a minute. Well, how could you have these two positions? How do they juxtapose? And the law, the reason is they never cared about the group they claimed to care about in the first place. They understood. Like I say that this, this is very difficult. And I've, I've been trying to hammer this point home to my audience, right? The double standards proves that they never cared about what they claimed to care about, but they knew you did. Yes. Right? They know you care about kids in cages. Average people are like, of course we don't want to see kids in cages. We don't want to see that. But they never cared. That's They just pretended. They said, And to me, it's one of the most heinous things possible because they ident identify vulnerable groups. Kids in cages, that's terrible. Uh, we all agree, that's terrible. But it's a difficult situation and what do we do, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. They see, ah, there's vulnerability there. We can exploit that. Yes. We don't actually care about the kids, but we could pretend we do for our own selfish goals. And that's why they'll talk about a rape culture. They don't actually care about rapes. They don't care at all. When it benefits them, they'll cover it up or they'll say that those people should be let go. But they know that you care about it. They know that the average American cares about rapes. So they're like, aha, if we focus on this and exploit it, then that gives us sort of the power that we were looking for. Yes. Yes. I, I mean, I, I couldn't agree more with that, uh, honestly. Um, I came across this this article that I sent you just before the, the show started over at Ohio State University. And it's got this title and it says, uh, the title is, it, it, itself just kind of shocked me because it says, Equity, Equality, and Justice, Toddlers' Developmentally Appropriate Explorations. Keyword there being toddlers, right? Mm. And so, we, we, you know, we were talking about schools earlier. And th this is the reason I'm bringing this up because people tend to think, my kid's not going to face any 
a meaningful moral challenge until they're old enough to handle it. I think that's the natural assumption because you just kind of think your kid's probably going to be exposed to some kind of crap when they're about 13, 14 in the school. And by then you've already helped to shape the kid. And it's like, they're talking about toddlers now and what they're going to, what they think is developmentally appropriate. And one of the, uh, one of the bullet points that they had listed was creating Black Lives Matter and Love is Love flags for our classroom and cons consistently referencing them and their meanings. And again, toddlers, okay? So it's like you have these parents who send their kids or their toddlers into some kind of educational setting that's publicly funded and they get exposed to Black Lives Matter propaganda because again, the Black Lives Matter mantra was not just, oh, Black Lives Matter, Right, it, it was far more than that. It was, it was, in fact, white people in America are institutionally oppressive. White America has been bad always. Our history is fundamentally bad. We have to destroy the the American institutions, uh, all of them, and rebuild. And there was a lot inside of Black Lives Matter. And then there was, of course, the terrorist actions that they did, in which they burned down cities. All of that took place. And how much of that are they going to throw at these little toddlers? And I think that people need to rem be reminded that they want to start off indoctrinating kids at a really young age. Well, th this story can't be true. I've been reliably told that things like this aren't taught in schools. And when it is taught, it's only a legal theory and it's only taught to university people, but you're a bigot if you don't want it taught. Also, it's not being taught, but you're a bigot if you want it, don't want it taught, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's obvious that this happens. Like, it's interesting. The, say what you will about people that sort of have shaped the narrative around our establishment and the left, right? They are very intelligent and they understand that language is power, right? And it's why they want to make certain words verboten and change the definition of words and things like that, because that enable that is a huge power. Because if you control what people can say, you can control what people yes. think, right? And so they know that they, and they're very good. So. The issue that you're talking about here, I've had debate after debate about critical race theory and people say, well, it's not really being taught. And I'll say, I don't care what you call it. Here's this class right now, right. these toddlers. Here's literally not me saying it, the people that are teaching it saying, this is what we want to teach, yes. right? Do you think this is right or wrong? And they'll say, well, I guess I think that's wrong. And I'll say, then why are you spending all of your time instead of saying, my God, that's horrible. Yes, I join you in saying that this is wrong. Why is that just an afterthought to you? But your big pet peeve is, but don't call it critical race theory. Whatever you do, don't call it critical race theory. Why is that important? Well, it's because deep down they've been indoctrinated to know that they have to defend that semantic argument, yes. right? Because by defending the idea of critical race theory and then understanding all of this stuff or critical race practices under the umbrella of it, it allows them to not focus. It's very similar to what we were talking about the individual, yes. right? It allows them to focus on the thing as a whole, as opposed to look at this individual situation. Every There is no excuse ever for teaching children that they are a victim or they are an oppressor based on immutable characteristics such as their sex, their skin color, etc. There is no excuse for lining black kids on one side of the room and white kids on the other. There is no excuse for this politicization of saying this political movement's good and make no mistake about it. Black Lives Matter is a political unit. That's what it is. It's, uh, there's no excuse for defending that sort of, and I'd say that on my side yes. as well. Right. I don't want I don't want a teacher saying white people get victimized by a lot like the Biden administration. So imagine like I don't want that either. That's terrible. Yes. Whatever happened to teaching children like, you know, civics and mathematics and science and teaching toddlers how to socially interact and things like that. I think civics that. is it, racist. It's no wonder it? our education system. Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> that's what I heard. And of course, right there in that thing was not just Black Lives Matter, but also love is love. And the thing is that we know that that's one of the sort of catchphrases for the LGBT movement. 
And the thing is, again, toddlers. So how do you intend on talking to toddlers about the fact that love is love um, without talking to them about sex and sexual orientation? Because again, and this is kind of like to kind of sort of bounce off what you were saying, these people have been telling me that they don't talk to toddlers about sex or sexual orientation. That's not going on in our schools. And it wasn't until, the, you know, Florida came forth with, with that bill and said, you can't talk about kids, you can't talk to kids about this topic, that suddenly we have a sense of outrage. And then there are these arguments, uh, or, sorry, instructions, like what you see on this particular page over at the Ohio State University, where they're, they're blatantly saying, well, yes, we're going to talk to toddlers about how, how love is love, which is a direct reference, of course, to these, uh, to the gay and homosexual and, and trans lobby and all of that. And it, it further says something on the, the same page, says that they're going to talk to toddlers about injustice, giving children a basic understanding that some people receive worse treatment because of things they cannot control, such as skin color, hair texture, gender expression, or differing abilities. And so I have to look at that and kind of view it through through the sort of leftist lens. Like, why are they mentioning hair texture? Oh, I get it. They're saying that, you know, black people are treated badly on the basis of uh, of the way their hair looks and all this. And then you see right. gender expression. And again, I have to remind myself, we're not talking about college students having a discussion about so-called gender expression. We're talking about toddlers. And there is no gender to the toddler. They're just, they're, I'm a boy or I'm a girl and that's it. And past that, why would you try and confuse them? If there's a boy who's more passive, right, that you might call more effeminate, who cares? If you've got a boy who's more passive, at what point do you need somebody to come in and say to this, you know, toddler, hey, maybe, maybe there's something wrong with you so that you were, you were made half wrong. So the inside of you is different to the outside because, I don't know, God made a mistake. Uh, and that's what you're kind of saying. Or to, to the little girl who's, who's more assertive and would hitherto now be called a tomboy at what point do we have the right to go and say to this you know what three four year old hey um you were made wrong so we're gonna have to sort of dress you differently and maybe change your name and and sort of deny you intrinsically uh as you ought to be and 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 how are we saying that's a moral thing to teach to toddlers like i i, I struggle to even see how we, we got here yeah, and you know, someone in my chat says something uh, that I think is worth repeating. They said, uh, you know, basically that we want to control what people say and things like that. Uh, this is an argument you hear quite often on the left, where they'll say, "Oh, I thought you were for free speech. Now all of a sudden, you want to censor us. You you want to censor us." And so, to which I say things like that. I say this. I say, "Well, shouldn't we teach Nazism in schools as well? Shouldn't we teach that as a viable ideology?" Right, right. And they'll say, "Of course not." Ben Burgess, I was on a debate panel with him. He said, interesting, because we were talking about censorship of Joe Rogan. He says, interesting to hear Rob uh, talk about censoring Joe Rogan. He's against you know, teaching CRT in schools. No, our tax dollars going to pay to indoctrinate our children is different than saying that Joe Rogan, or for that matter, Don Lemon or Jake Tapper, should be able to say whatever they want on social media and on their news platforms. I don't care about that. But taking our tax dollars and creating curriculum, we all implicitly understand that there are things that we say, well, we can't teach everything. 
And there are certain things that should be verboten that we shouldn't talk about. I think one of those should be sexualization of children. Yes. If you think that's anti-free speech, that we don't allow people to teach sexualization of children, I think that you're probably someone who needs to be investigated because I would wonder why you're so interested in teaching the sexualization to toddlers or teaching racial discrimination and things like that to toddlers. I think that that's a problem with you. It's not an anti-free speech position. It is a reality position, understanding that we shouldn't allow or shouldn't allow teachers to teach children these complex issues that could end up having very significant harmful effects. Right. And at least in the case of, of another in England, this has happened where you have had the, the teaching of kids, uh, the, the encouraging of kids to identify as trans. And then the school systems actually providing hormone therapy drugs to these kids and especially um, a very high percentage of autistic kids that this happened to. And now that's been sort of reversed after it got exposed, but this actually happened and took place. And there were teachers who played a role in this. And it's like, you realize just how out of control this whole thing can get. Um, and because that's the sort of thing that really isn't that reversible, right? You take these kids and you confuse the hell out of them. You tell them this, this is what you do to matter. You pretend to be this other thing. And well, heck, maybe you are a more masculine girl. I don't know. Um, and then you take them and you say, well, actually, you're not just a masculine girl. You're not just an assertive girl. You're, you're, actually, a, you're actually a guy, right? So we have to fix you um, physically because for some reason we kind of came to this conclusion that... If, if you even if you accept their whole pretense, right, that the the mind is, is one thing and the body is another. I don't know how we came to the conclusion that it only makes sense to fix the, the body, and it's and it's bigotry to try and fix the mind. I don't know how we came to that conclusion, um, but somehow that's the sort of thing that we're supposed to sort of grandiosely accept. And then we we, we drug them, and then we call in this morality. And I think we've I don't know maybe it was a few years ago we were talking about how in university systems that they were so far left and they were indoctrinating these these high school graduates and all of that. And then we started talking about, well, they were in high schools. You know, it, it didn't seem like it took very long before now we're talking about toddlers. And that seems like something we would joke about a few years ago. Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely rapidly increasing, not just the it's not just becoming more prevalent. It's becoming more extreme. Right. And, and I mean, this is true of of the establishment and the left wing all over the place. Like if you literally, I've seen videos where people do this, where they'll take the positions of the platform in 2008 that Barack Obama ran on. And they'll just take that platform and they'll start reading it on to college students and saying, what do you think about this platform? And they'll be like, this is bigotry. This is racism. This is, you know, it's xenophobic, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, that's Barack Obama. That was his platform that he ran. He would be considered, Barack Obama would be considered far right. 2008, Barack Obama would be considered far right. That's how rapidly. Yeah. And, and politics is downstream of culture. The rapid movement of the politics is because the culture has moved so yes. rapidly. That's what happened. And the indoctrin, like this sort of stuff, what we're teaching and indoctrinating in children in schools, that's one of the biggest things. I did policy debate in college. It was the most radical left-wingers that you could imagine. I was considered the most <laughs> extreme far right you could imagine. Imagine people that were centrist Democrats were considered super right wing. Right. Like you had to be, it, it was an insane, you routinely, you would walk into rounds and it would be like, acknowledge your privilege as a white man. You should forfeit this round as a white man. All white people should be killed. All men should be killed. These were arguments that were made routinely. You could never make the inverse argument. You could never be like, well, all women should be killed. They would, you would be, you would be get the boot real fast, you know? And the funny thing is it was just 10 years ahead of its time. Yeah. What I saw at debate 
then became the norm at just regular university. Now it's becoming the norm at high schools. And then it will become the norm in elementary schools if we don't interject. And one thing that I'm hopeful for, not to be you know super pessimistic here, is I think that you're seeing a lot of these parents, particularly women, that probably vote Democrat a lot. Mm-hmm. They're like, whoa, what is happening? What is happening? And that's why... That's why the FBI was weaponized to go after these angry parents. That's why there's such a movement to stop transparency in having teachers. And that's one of the silver linings of COVID. Once kids were taught from home, all of a sudden parents said, wait, what? What are we teaching these children? And so now they're scrambling. They're like, and they understand it's a big plank. They need to be able to indoctrinate these children. That's how they've got the radical push that they've got all through culture and politics. So it's, you know, it's a possible silver lining that I hope people are waking up. Um, There's a guy in the chat who is is sort of arguing. He says, not anymore. Culture is now downstream from politics. I don't think that 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 is true or has ever been true. I, I think that what you see is that the academia influences our culture and destroys our culture in many ways, and that affects our, pol- our political system. Ultimately, the politicians are, by and large, voted in. <laughs> I say by and large. Um, but seriously, they, they, are, they, are, they are voted in, and they are sort of representative of the society that puts them in place. And like it or not, our culture is going the wrong way. And I do think that there's, there is some truth to the fact that also culture comes from the religion also that's supposed to underpin it and we no longer have that either and that's why you have this kind of stream going in the wrong direction but the political class emerges from our our decimated culture and that's also why you see in in places throughout the country some reversal in things like, like, like what you're seeing over there in florida now you're seeing some kind of backtracking there after lots of different parents started to speak up. You see some of the same stuff over in Arizona, right, when you had these different school boards that got invaded, is a term I like to use. Um, And then the political people in the area started to fight back on behalf of the parents because they realized that to keep their offices, they had to speak up on these particular issues because they realized that these issues were people were things that people were passionate about. And that's what I mean when I'm when I'm talking about how politics is downstream from culture, because it's the politicians that change in response to what they think matters to you, both actually literally at the ballot box, very importantly, but also it makes them look really bad in the sense that they have like all these different exposure on their local news and that kind of thing. It, it, it really does matter. Right. And when... If, if you think the opposite, consider it this way. If you think, no, 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 politics is upstream of culture, then try this little thought experiment, particularly if you're conservative. Mm-hmm. Hope and pray that the Republican Party is going to actually solve these problems. Good luck. Go ahead. Just sit there. If we just elect Jeb Bush, he'll take care of it. Mitt Romney will take care of these issues that we have. We just need the right Republican in office. That's never been true. That culture is more connected to the individual than politics, which is probably the reason that polit- or that culture is down or that politics is downstream of culture because it's more about the individual. Even politically, the closer you get to the individual and the localized level, the more effect it has on your life, right? And what's more important than politics is your individual life and how you're teaching your children and your ideology and the culture that you believe in. So it makes sense that even at the national level, that that culture is going to have more influence on politics than vice versa. You know, you could take all sorts of issues. I'll just take one. I support gay marriage. I'm for gay marriage. But regardless of what your stance on it. Well, why, would you, why, why would you uh, go for that one, Rob? I'm telling you guys, every time he brings this one up, it's the one <laughs> argument that we have. It's like the, the main thing that want, on which we disagree. And so I, I'm just telling you that we're not on the same page here. But go ahead, Rob. That's true. I know. But I bring it up for the I only bring it up to talk about 
originally when I forget the proposition in California, right? When they uh, pushed forth this proposition, yeah. the reason that it failed and they, they were shocked that it failed was something like 90% of blacks voted and Hispanics because culturally they were like, no. So then they had to use all sorts of cultural influence to people in California, right? That was, well, no, I guess no, that's not I, what happened though, Rob, because what actually happened is they went to the Supreme Court in order to fix the democratic process so that democracy didn't take place because they couldn't conv convince enough people, which is what they also did in Roe versus Wade with abortion. They, the left said, you know what? Screw democracy. That's what they, they, you know, they always like go democracy. But on these big issues, they're like, actually, we don't want the democratic process. We're going to screw the culture. We don't actually care the fact that we can't convince enough people to get this thing passed. So instead, we're going to use a very authoritarian dictatorial me method. We're going to go to the Supreme Court, say there's something there in the Constitution that actually isn't, regardless of your opinions on either abortion or gay marriage. It doesn't matter. Neither is protected in the Bill of Rights. And then say, you know what? Because of this, this group of, of nine now tyrants, we instead are going to take away the position from the people. We're going to destroy the democratic process. We're going to say to hell with the, what the culture says. And, and instead, we're going to sort of rule from, from the, what, the Tower of Nine. But, the, but even then, right? So that was the law, right? Mm -hmm. Even then, though, the impact of what average people thought about gay marriage Right. And how people live their life and things like that. It was more influenced not by that decision. It wasn't like that those people that voted against it were all of a sudden like, well, if the Supreme Court sure. says so. Right. Then I guess I'm right. The way that it became impactful to people's lives. Right. To push the ball further towards the progressive agenda and sort of what we see today with the insane LGBTQ trans movement and things like that was because they had to first change people culturally. They had to have this constant stream of entertainers oversaturating that it was hip. It was cool. Uh, all of these movements, they had to get into the churches to say it's OK to do this. It's hip and cool. You know, uh, Jesus would be cool with it. Right. And I think that's one of the most significant things when you see, despite all the pressure of things. Polit politically, decisions that maybe people wouldn't agree with, like particularly Christians that were in the church, and how historically it didn't matter the way the political wind shifted, that those Christians reliably believed what was being taught in the church mm -hmm. to them. All of a sudden, now they realize, well, wait a minute, if we get into the church, now we have access to so many of these people. And you see it, I think, you know, with Catholicism, you see it with the Pope, right, pushing these sort of let right. It, I'm not saying it's it's winning necessarily. In some ways, it is. But what I'm saying is they understand that getting into that cultural institution mm -hmm. is more important than just saying, "Well, we'll just rule by fiat." Because ruling by fiat, the problem with it is, if the culture overwhelms you at some point, then there'll be a sort of populist movement to take it down. So they we're constantly inundated with all of these controversial positions of our culture, every institution in our culture, whether it be the media, academia, the entertainment industry, it all as a monolith pushes the same positions sure. that the political people want. It's not the opposite way. It's not that the political people are pushing the position and then culture gradually changes. It's To me, it seems to be the exact opposite. I do agree that, that in general, it seems the exact opposite, though I don't think that in the particular case of gay marriage, there was enough of a cultural shift in order to you know, necessitate a, a proper change that involved the legislative process, like what happens in most laws that are passed in our country, right? So it's kind of an exception. The fact that they decided the, the, it mattered enough to this particular sect of people that they were going to go to the Supreme Court because even like at the time that the Supreme Court 
decision took place, you still did not have a majority pro-gay marriage. Like you do, I think, I think you do. Oh, I, I agree with that. Yeah, and also I, you mentioned the Catholic Church. I was going to say the Catholic Church does not even today approve of gay marriage because it's, it's still considered an absolute, um, well... Don't they, haven't they shifted to allowing gay priests? Uh, they do not. Well, I mean, the, the priest is celibate either way. Um, so it's not like they can get married or have any sort of romantic relations or anything like that. So, I mean, there is that. Uh, <laughs> but but I, but not just with gay marriage. I mean, with the Pope, you see a bunch of radical left-wing positions that they're pushing. Like how many church, not just the Catholic church, how many churches yeah. were basically touting the line of Black Lives Matter? Well, yeah, I mean, you had the Black Lives Matter. And certainly I mean, in a lot of different Protestant churches, you, you do have gay marriage nowadays and gay priests and all of that, for sure. I mean, at this point, I don't think there's any argument that there has been a massive cultural shift. I just think that the, the, the we sort of like had a ramrod approach when it came to gay marriage that did not even... You you know, uh, pay any attention or pay that much attention to where the culture was at the time. You know, so uh, he only had like 1% acceptance of gay marriage. They couldn't have done what they did. We're, you know, right. so I think we're both in agreement there. It's just that they didn't, they didn't wait because they were, they were ridiculously impatient at that point. And see what you think. What, what do you think about this? It was something I was kicking around. I heard someone kind of sure. mention, right? Like there's the political class and the ruling class, and then there's kind of the average people in the country, the normal people, right? But there's this sort of buffer zone, right? There's these people that aren't necessarily in the ruling class, but they're kind of the people that are more elite than just the average people, right? Uh, so these might be like, you know, suburban people that are kind of, uh, you know, sort of wealthy. They're not Jeff Bezos. They're not people running corporations and stuff Jesse like that. Jesse Smollett or, and or, I more, think, or, or less than that? Like Jesse Smollett's of the world or... Yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe people like that. And so, and even lesser than that to some extent, like you don't have to be famous, right? And I think that oftentimes what happens is that our politicians are appealing to that group mm -hmm. and that group has undue influence on our culture. Yes. The easiest way to simplify this would be, they say that 99% of tweets are done by like 3% of the people on yep. Twitter, right? It's that sort of same ideology, except not just on social media, in our culture. And so oftentimes what happens is, even if 80% of people are against something, if this group, is 80% for it, then it ends up matriculating through our culture anyways, because those people have more influence on our cultural institutions because of their relative, even though yeah. we, I think that the mistake people make is you think like there are these shadowy people that, you know, Bilderbergers that are wearing black robes and they control everything. And although there are shadowy people that are making movers and shakers that do a bunch of terrible things, they also are reliant to some extent on this group of people below that, that they're kind of appealing to that is necessary for that to stay. And so then us at the bottom, we're kind of like, there's these, no one really cares about us. Even if, eight, you know, if 90% of people are like, don't bail out the banks, don't put a no fly zone in Ukraine or something <laughs> like that. It doesn't matter if that's what 90% of the people think, because the people that really matter all disagree with you and they'll eventually be able to win that cultural battle if we don't challenge Yeah, I, I do agree. And I, I have said before that I think there is a multi-tiered system in our, in our justice system and so on. I don't think it's fair. And so when a lot of like mainstream conservatives or rather mainstream Republicans, let's be honest, um, say things and they, they defend our, our justice system as if it's kind of perfect, I, I really just kind of cringe. And I'm like, I, I'm not going to kind of play that game. And there's a lot to be fixed. I think there's a lot of underhandedness that goes on. I do think that people who are rich have a better example, so a better a better chance in it than people who are not. I think that's that's a real problem. I think it's unfair, um, and, and that 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 does go on. And I think it doesn't do as well to deny that kind of thing. I don't think it's really as racially related as it is like related to things like 
poverty and influence and that kind of thing uh, in modern American society. Yeah, it's, and I think that, you know, and I think class is certainly a huge part of it, but I think something that a lot of people don't talk about is I think most people don't have an interest in politics. I think most people are more concerned about their close circle of family and friends and themselves and embettering them, right? So if you're those people that are actively like, I want to push the agenda, you have a better chance of pushing the agenda than the guy that's just like, dude, I get up at 6 a.m. to plow the fields, right? Like, I just want to go, I want to I wanna have, I have a good relationship with my wife, I have kids that I'm raising, uh, you know, I'm doing all this work. And, and so that person... You know, and, and again, I don't know what you think about this, but I think that one silver lining of what we've seen in these past few years is try talking politics to you. For me, I live in rural Pennsylvania. Try talking politics to your neighbor, right? They're just like, whatever, Rob. Like, I'm busy. I don't have <laughs> time for this. But all of a sudden, they were told they're not allowed to go to yes. work or they can't go visit their mom in the nursing home. Mm-hmm. You know, now all of a sudden, politics just punched them in the face. And I think that we'll see, hopefully, I'm hopeful. The, the culture will be more powerful than the politics because enough people will say, no, I don't accept this, that hopefully... I do wonder how that's going to relate know. to things like gas prices. They're difficult for regular people to ignore, you know, as they go up. And I mean, there's only so much that we can say about inflation here without discussing what happened, you know, throughout COVID, though, you know, I'm, I'm pretty comfortable doing so, frankly. But, I mean, just, just to give the audience some idea, we're limited on what we can say on YouTube um, on this particular topic. But honestly, I, I do think that um, when you look at things like you know, the gas prices and all that. I mean, you've got a kind of attempt at distraction at the moment. It's, it's, it wasn't anything to do with the COVID policies or, or the Biden administration. It's just this war, you know, that just happened by itself. What do you think? It's 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 so ridiculous, right? And it, like, here's the thing. I, I don't know how you would, call, I don't consider myself to be an expert in anything. I think I'm a reasonably intelligent person that's articulate, that likes talking, and that I have a strong ideology, right? So I can talk about a litany of topics because I just, but that doesn't mean I have a specific expertise of a lot of topics. I will talk to a lot of people that are economists or that, you know, have doctorates in the economy, or they could talk the jargon of the economy, right? But what happens is, and we can see it with other things like, virologist, I'll just say hypothetically, that, uh, you know, they could spin a good story and talk the jargon, but they want you to not look at the reality in front of your face. All you need to know is this. Yes, the, we changed the description of what fr- money printed is, M1 and M2 and things like this. So I'll just use the Fed balance sheet. Since Biden's been in office, the Fed balance sheet has doubled. Right. That basically means all of the money in this country has doubled in two years. All the money that existed, basically, it's an oversimplification, but that's basically what it means, has doubled. If you don't think that that devalues your (laughs) dollar, you're insane. And I don't care how someone could tell me, like, but Rob, I'm an expert in modern monetary theory. Let me tell you what Paul Krugman says. In his book on page 323, he says, that's irrelevant. It's irrelevant. You know it. All of us know it. Like, we do. And it's amazing to watch them, you know, I always like this line, I always screw it up, from the movie JFK. Oliver Stone, by the way, is really, really doing awesome, in my opinion, here lately. Uh, but in this, in the movie JFK, uh, it's about this, like, hypothetical court case that comes about the assassination of JFK. And Kevin Costner's playing the lawyer, and they're talking about the magic bullet. And, and then this, you know, government stooge is like, well, actually, we can prove with you with your math how that bullet would be able to change direction like seven times. And Costner says something like, yeah, you'd be able to prove to me how an elephant can hang by its tail off a daisy off the side of the cliff, too. But we all know it's not true. Like, and, and that's the reality. They they sort of baffle yes. you by making things as complex as possible. And so now we're supposed to believe, like CBS put out an article the day that Russia invaded and said inflation's high because of Putin. 
the day that he invaded. You know, the numbers, the inflation numbers that 7.9 that we saw, by the way, that's not the real yeah. number. The real number of inflation because they've changed CPIs well over 15%. But the 7.9 number, that's February. That's before the invasion. And so when we look at all of these numbers that came out, the government's own number, 10% historic high for production uh, chart, yeah. right? For producer, uh, at, when, when we look at that and they're like, well, it's, it's Russia. Like these people will shamelessly lie to your face and it, it, don't believe them. Don't think, oh, well, that's what they do. They're in the field of economics, so they must know people more. Do, than people do no, seem no, no, to no. forget quickly. And it's like, it's this thing where they get told repeatedly over and over again by the mainstream media. Well, it's it's because of the war, and people have forgotten that it wasn't it, the war. is is pretty darn new, you know. And so we've had these different things of, of especially gas prices going up. People have been taking pictures for some time throughout the Biden administration, as so it just kind of gets bigger and bigger and bigger. You know, the prices keep on going up, and that has manifest effects, you know, <laughs> throughout the entire economy. And we're supposed to look away from that and just say, you know, it, it's Putin's fault because he's the supervillain over there. And we're, we're kind of trying to make him, by the way, into an archetypal supervillain um, upon whom we can blame all of our Zelensky's problems. the hero. Right, exactly. Right. And he, exactly. You, you've nailed it. And I'm sorry, but it's just it's very rarely that simple. And I don't think it's that simple in this case. And certainly we can't blame Putin for for all of our rising gas prices and rising everything prices. Right. Because inflation happens across the board. All right, it is getting late, so I do want to go ahead and wrap up the show. I had intended to talk about more related to Hunter Biden, but we kind of got carried away, and that that happens with us. And I, I do, I do like the fact that we are able to to carry such a, a natural conversation. Me so too. I think we should we should do it again. And I would like to have you I'm back. Absolutely on. for it. And I, I I'll probably be continuing my stream on Twitch after this, and we'll talk a little more about the Hunter Biden. But yeah, I I thought that the topics we hit were great, you know, and we didn't even spend that much time. You know, one of the things is I think both of us would agree stories like COVID and the things surrounding it or Ukraine are hugely important. Yes. But oftentimes when you're streaming as much as we do, it kind of gets redundant. Like what more is there yeah, to say? I said that last you week, know, right? on some of these topics. So, yeah, I, th I like talking about the different topics. I thought it was Yeah, great. me too. All right. And I don't know why your, your camera keeps um, acting possessed, <laughs> by knows? the way. Logitech. <laughs> yeah, I try to fix it in real time as best I could. All right, so guys who are watching this on my uh, on my YouTube channel, if you will look up, it, it, Rob's name as it's spelled is in the title of this video on every platform that I'm streaming. So if you wanted to uh, continue and follow him, you can look him up on Twitch, right, Rob? You're on Twitch. Yeah, mostly on Twitch. It's twitch.tv backslash Rob Noor, all one word, uh, spelled R-O-B-N-O-E-R-R. -R. Uh, I'll be streaming a little tonight, but almost always uh, weeknights around 8 p.m. Eastern time. All right, that sounds good. All right, thank you so much for coming on, Rob. I really do appreciate it, and it's it's been like probably 18 months or more. So we'll have to have you on in a much shorter span of time than, than that in the future. Absolutely. Thank you all again. Right, thanks. If you're enjoying this podcast please consider helping to support it. You can give a one-time donation or buy a branded mug at thecrusadergal.com. Or you can donate monthly by searching for my name, Sarah Corrier, at Subscribestar. Thank you so much. I couldn't do this without your support. And whether you can help financially or not, don't forget to tell your friends. Big Tech isn't going to help me spread the word. Thank you.